Hey, everybody, just give us a few seconds as we let people into the Zoom. Hope you're having a wonderful Tuesday. If you're in the Bay Area, maybe you're clamping down for this epic atmospheric river we're about to have. Fareed, do you have the tarps ready? I have not done a lot of preparation. I, I'm sort of like, <laughs> I've got a little lax on the, you know, the rain is coming fear thing, just because like the last couple of times have been a little less crazy than usual. But, I mean, I don't know. What am I going to do? If my roof leaks, my roof leaks. There's really nothing I can do about it at this point. So I literally just had my roof repaired yesterday. So fingers crossed they didn't screw something up because it's going to get its pressure test today. I hope hopefully a bunch of you have listened to the podcast unsolicited feedback uh, to give you a little bit of background. Fried and I started about this this in September, October of last year, something like September that. And we started off by doing the traditional Q and A, and honestly, we just got bored with it. And so we <laughs> we did something a little bit different. We we still invited a guest, and then we started to basically take things that we were talking about anyways in Slack or in meetups in person and just start recording them. Well, today we're going to talk uh, through a few different things. You know, this is the first time we're recording this format live, but we just wanted to welcome all of you. Hopefully you enjoy this uh, episode as well as the podcast as a whole. We'll be kicking off season two of Unsolicited Feedback with this episode, and we have a bunch of different guests lined up along the way. And the topic that we really want to jam on today is how basically product careers are changing with all of the emerging technology and change in AI. And then we're going to do something at the end we've never done, which is we'll take some solicited feedback, some Q&A. We collected some Q&A beforehand, but we'll take some live questions along the way as well. And we'll dive into that. But when we were prepping for this episode, we were like, oh man, how are we going to talk about this change with AI, with careers, because things are changing so fast. And I think where we landed was we could talk through this through a few different frameworks that we've used in the past to talk through careers. We could talk through the framework of a T. We could talk through Robbie Meta's product competency model. And I think we should also talk a little bit about viewing evolution and change by looking at things through the career ladder as well, because I think there's a bunch of emerging products that have some implications there. And so we figured that we'd start here. And I wrote this blog post over 10 years ago, which makes me feel unbelievably old. I also look back at this blog post and I'm like, oh my God, there's some things that are cringeworthy in here that I would love to change. And I always meant to go back and update it, but I just got a little bit busy. But the, the what's the most this- cringeworthy, Brian? What's the most cringeworthy? Yeah, man. I don't know. Just like, I guess some of the skills that I that I put in here. I I, I don't know. It's I, not. It's not the picture of yourself. Is that? <laughs> well, look at that incredible beard and you know, nice little slick hair over. <laughs> like, yeah, I do look. Do I look ten years younger there? No comment. <laughs> oh, okay. That, that's probably the right answer. So I wrote this blog post because essentially. It's not never like I went through any sort of formal training or learning for my career. Like in college, my majors were sports business and statistics, right? I just ended up in this world of growth. And so I decided to write a post on how I thought about it as well as linked out to a bunch of different resources along the way. But the core of this post, the core of the framework, and then I'm interested in getting your take was how to think about shaping the different skill sets and topic areas 
in your career. And I think this applies to any career track, whether it's customer acquisition or product or, or, or whatever it might be. And that was like shaping yourself like a T. And the core of that was essentially in any function like product or marketing or other pieces, there are a core set of topics that you want to go wide on. And the reason you want to go wide on those things is because those are the things that help you understand the function and discipline as a whole. It gives you context. It helps you understand strategy, helps you understand how to connect the functional strategy to the company strategy, like all of those pieces. It makes you a fairly versatile player, but you want to pair that with going incredibly deep on something as well, right? Put yourself in the top 10% of professionals out there on some really important skill set or topic within the function. And in marketing, that's typically you go really, really deep on a specific channel, SEO, paid acquisition, other kind of channels like that. In product, it's a little bit different. In product, basically these different specializations of product have emerged over time, which essentially what you find is that there's core product managers focused primarily on producing core features. The growth specialization emerged over time. And then there's folks that are focused on scaling infrastructure as well as product market fit expansion strategy. And you typically want to understand all of those domains, but go really like deep on this one. And as I started prepping for this, I was like, oh man, I like, does the T change? Do you have to shape yourself something different in an AI world? Is that still the same and the skill sets just change underneath? So I'll pause there though, Fareed, and I'll get your take first on how looking at how careers and products specifically might evolve through this lens. Yeah. So I think there's two factors that I have a hard time teasing apart here that are changes in the outside world that are kind of happening at the same time. And I think one is the AI thing, right? Still early. ChatGPT is barely, a, is not even a year and a half old. And the other is companies increasing focus on efficiency, team sizes, effectiveness, and ROI and profitability, driving a change, I think, in terms of what we saw in the previous three or four eras is that you could be very successful in your career as a specialist. Maybe not even that T-shaped, like an I-shaped person, because companies were adding a lot of heads, they were adding a lot of people, and they wanted the person who was the best at the one thing they were looking for. And they were okay with having, let's say in marketing, an SEO specialist and a social specialist and a organic SEO specialist and like growing a marketing team across many, many, many specialists, email person, et cetera, et cetera. And so I don't know how much of it is AI-driven versus not, but I do think that you have to be outcome-driven in a world where certain executional skills are made really simple through AI tools, right? If writing a doc is 100 times easier or analyzing a bunch of keywords or getting through a ton of customer feedback in a survey, suddenly the executional skills, like I know how to run a survey, become less important. And what becomes actually important is closing the loop on the whole thing. I'm really good at building customer-driven products. So I was trying to come up with shapes and I was like, maybe O-shaped people, meaning like they can take a whole thing and finish it without a lot of like other specialists having to be involved. I don't know. That's kind of where my head is at around this. I think the higher you go up the strategy stack, so to speak, the harder it is 
to be good at it and the harder it is for AI tools to replace that behavior. And so your job has to be to get good at the deeper thinking and higher level planning strategy pieces of the puzzle versus the nuts and bolts of execution, which I think start to get taken away slowly over time. What do you think about that, Brian? Does that seem right to you? Yeah. So an analogy I heard the other day, and I'm blanking on who it was. Maybe it was you. (laughs) I don't even know, but a lot of roles are going to shift to looking more like director roles, right? Sorry, not like a director of product, but think about directing a movie, right? Where, and you, you worked at Pixar, right? And, and so your role at Pixar, which was what exactly again, it was like, so I did a lot of like visual effects and I I was a tech, it was called the technical director. It's kind of like a half artist, half software engineer. I was way more on the software engineering side of it, but putting pixels on the screen and executing on things in the actual film. And that job is a good analogy because half the work is like probably get eaten away. Yeah. 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 Grunt worky, like grind through detail stuff, right? That is just time consuming. And the other half is like hard creative thinking. How do I make something that's not easy to do possible to do? How do I make it look great? How do I have the taste to evaluate whether what I've done is high quality, fits into the look and feel of the film, whether it actually tells the story, et cetera. And there's a whole layer of checks and balances to make sure that that happens. That all goes up to the to the film director. But at every layer, someone is giving creative feedback. And when I think about product management, there's like a whole bunch of spin your wheels stuff and hard work. And I'm not trying to say that it's not valuable, but like writing user stories, putting things into Jira, prioritizing bugs, making sure things are being put into the company roadmap doc in the right place so that product marketing knows when it's going to release. And then there's the taste, the craft, the, co- the hard problems of does this solve a customer problem? Does this solve a business problem? Those things are going to be harder to abstract, right? Or to replace through at least the current state of AI tools. I'm sure there are many people, maybe even on this call, who are like AI maximalists who believe that all of that work will be replaced too. But I think all we can do is plan for the next year or two. That, That's that stuff I, that can't be changed. That I think is actually really important. I've seen, I've had a lot of conversations where people go off into AI futurist land where yeah. they're trying to predict essentially what's going, what it's going to be like when AGI takes over or, or whatever it might be. And I think for practical purposes in managing your career, the longer the time horizon, obviously the probability that you're correct on those predictions or anybody is correct just goes lower and lower. And so that's just like a bad way to think about managing your career and like what you need to do next. And so I've seen a lot of professionals a little bit anxious about what's going to happen to their career. And I think part of that anxiety just comes from all of the unknowns and the speed of change. And I think scoping that down a little bit more to looking at it through the lens of the next year or two and actually just being really open and willing to consistently change and evolve versus like, choosing the thing that is going to have some sort of permanency long-term is probably the right way to mold yourself and manage yourself through a lot of this constant change. And so I think looking at it through the next year or two, right? I think one of the things you can try to understand is, well, what is AI really good at today? What is it getting better at really quickly? And then what is the thing right beyond that? 
And what you're talking about, right, the, what a lot of people talk about is AI is actually really good at things like executing like type one thinking, things that are kind of spur of the moment in our brain. And like the best example of this is if I ask you if, what's two by two, you're just going to spit out four, right? You're not like actually doing math in your head. You're not like thinking through the actual steps of the problem. But if I ask you like, what's 132 times 84 divided by three, like you're going to sit down and think through some stuff. And that's where kind of AI is great right now, but is getting actually better very quickly. And so you can think about this spectrum on that, like type one to complexity of strategic problems or type two thinking. And it's essentially like the more steps in the strategic thought, right? The less good AI is going to be at that right now, right? And a lot of, I think the tasks and the pieces that you're talking about is right now executing like writing subject lines and copies of emails or writing PRDs and all that kind of stuff. Right now, the tools are really good at probably getting you to like an 80% version, right? And so as a result, those things are much more efficient for PMs and doing those things well, we're very quickly moving to a world where just doing those things well doesn't, is not going to get you ahead. Because the next step of this, those tools are going to get to doing those types of tasks at like 98, 99% right level, like pretty damn close to 100%. And so you got to move across that spectrum to what are the types of problems and outcomes that I can get good at delivering that require like more complexity, more steps, because that's where the creativity and trade-offs and context in all of these things have to come together to make a really, really good decision. And so those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. But anyways, your point on next year to two is the scope is I think yeah. really, really key. So two things that came to mind for me that I think are also important, specific things that I think product people in particular need to spend their time and energy on. The first is technical thinking and understanding the technology behind LLMs and AI tools. And I don't think this means learn to write code because I actually think that's one of those type one things that's going away. It is learning to reason and understand about what these tools are good at and not good at. There's sort of two ways to think about products, right? There's top-down, here's a customer problem. Let me identify how we're going to solve it, which is, I think, the way most products are built. And there's bottoms-up, which is the technology has these certain capabilities that are really, really interesting and valuable and good. And how do we connect the dots to a meaningful and important customer problem on the other side. Because there are certain top-down things that it's actually going to do badly, <laughs> right? Customer problems you think AI is a fit for, but it actually turns out they're bad. And you need to guide that. And also there might be things you didn't think of because you don't. if you don't understand what the technology is good at, you can't connect the dots to interesting customer problems. And I think this is important. And I think a lot of product development advice for the past like decade or so has really been top down. Start with the customer problem, go find the technology. And I think a lot of that was a response to in lean startup and other things, technology in search of problems. But I think LLMs are obviously useful, right? ChatGPT has proved that it can solve a wide range of different things, but it solves certain things 10x better than other things. 
And without a deep understanding of how this stuff works and what it's good at and actually tinkering and playing with it and using it yourself, I don't think you can be an effective product leader, certainly for AI type products. So that's one. The second piece of advice I've come to with this is the attachment that your career growth is correlated with the number of people you manage probably needs to go away. And I think this is one I'm having a hard time separating the AI thing from the economy thing. But I think that in this world, at least in the next year, if you assume that these tools work, if you assume that there will be more and more of them directed at people like us building products, right? Either a co-pilot for generating code much faster with smaller teams or ways to analyze data really effectively that you wouldn't have before or being able to build designs and prototype much more effectively. We need to find ways to align career growth with complexity of problem growth, not in number of humans we manage. And this is something that Claire talked about a lot in her episode. And I, it just has really resonated with me recently yeah. because I just don't think you need teams of 108 product managers to solve interesting problems in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to your first point because one of the questions that I've gotten is like, <laughs> is the specialization of an AI PM going to be a thing? Right. And I think this is a, it, an important question because I think like all the influencers out there, they want to make everything a specialization just to make a thing, <laughs> you know, like that. They can sell a thing. The P, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like the, the PM for the blue buttons, right? I don't, I don't know what it, I don't know what the specialization would be. And so, and I think my short answer to what we were saying earlier is think about this over the next couple of years is I actually think, yes, I, I think, and I'm actually pretty pessimistic and skeptical on everything becoming a core specialization. And so my thought process here is, okay, well, let's first evaluate why the growth PM became a thing, right? Like a core specialization. I think it was three things. One is that basically problem areas emerged that were highly impactful to software businesses that were best solved with software that weren't otherwise being solved for teams. So things around user activation and churn and leveraging software to drive acquisition, like all those types of things. Two is to solve those problems effectively required a slightly different skill set than how core PMs were tooled like to that point. And then the third was that the best way to solve those problems, it required new approaches, different types of development processes, different methods to solve those problems, right? So fast experimentation models using different versions of A-B testing and multivariate testing over your traditional like agile sprint type of process. And I think all three of those things are actually true over the next couple of years for AI as well, especially as existing companies transition to this. So one is, do new core customer problems emerge that are highly impactful to like most businesses? And I think the answer is yes, right? AI is going to touch almost any kind of software or technology business. Two, does, does it require new skills to go solve those problems, new knowledge and topic areas? And I think 100% yes, is, and I'll talk about that in a second of why, right? You talked a little bit about that of like, you need to understand what this stuff is capable of to connect it to the customer problem. And then three is requiring new approaches and development processes. And this is something that as Reforge has been getting into and building more stuff as we're realizing, actually, we have to approach our development a little bit differently as well. So two problems that have emerged 
One is that getting the typical customer feedback on a design prototype just flat out doesn't work with right. anything that's Gen AI product because the customer feedback you get is it kind of depends on what this thing generates for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, which you can't capture in a typical customer design prototype, which you could in a SaaS software, especially with interactive prototypes, clicking through the experience, like all that kind of stuff. And so solving that is requiring us to develop new methods of approaches. The second thing is creating benchmark experiences is like a whole new thing for us. So part of the challenge here is that anytime you make a change to the underlying technology, the model, like the user experience, right? You don't necessarily know how this manifests for every single individual user because it's just generating something new every single time. And so what a lot of companies have done is had to go create these benchmark experiences. And so a simple example of this would be, let's say you're creating an AI experience to help your customers solve a bunch of product support questions for you. A benchmark data set would be you take 50 question sets that you might get from users, you make a change to the product or the underlying model, you then look at those 50 benchmark questions and evaluate and assess them like, is this better or worse? than the previous experience. That's like a whole new thing that is not- Kind of like qualitative A-B testing over a standard set of inputs or something like that. That's super interesting. And and I think like a whole set of methodologies and approaches to doing that are going to actually end up emerging. And and I think these things have existed in like other kind of more niche areas of ML modeling and stuff like that. But now you take those things and you basically are applying it to a way larger surface area, right? And so I think all of these things are going to mean as like companies go through these transitions, there is an opportunity to really specialize as a PM in AI, right? I think the question long-term is just, is all software powered by AI? And as a result, is it not a specialization? It's just like core competency, like a, a expectancy. But once again, like focusing on the next couple of years, I do think that there's an opportunity here to to go deep on this and and, and specialize and stand out. Yeah, I mean... That's scary advice to hear, and I don't know exactly what the answer to it is. We're talking about focus on the next 12 to 18 months because we have no idea what can be possible. But this makes me think, is the advice we're giving everybody dogpile into the two or three AI PM roles that are offered at different companies right now? And everybody wants those. And anyone who's in another type of PM role or marketing role feels like they're just sitting on the sidelines. I don't think that's that can't I mean, be the answer. That's right? probably like, part of the advice, yeah. but it can't be the answer, right? And so I think it's a little tricky because I think some companies that I've talked to are doing this sort of all AI is in an AI product group kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? I think if you're at one of those companies, every product team has the opportunity to ask the question, how can I use AI? And at minimum, you should be able to use AI in your internal processes and your internal ways of working in order to be more effective, like make yourself 10x, right? So I don't think it's just work on AI products. It is make your own systems better, write better product briefs because of it. Play around with prototyping tools. There's some amazing stuff about creating UIs out of natural language and and whole cloth to pitch products. Data analysis is another one. Oh, you're an okay SQL writer? Become a great SQL writer. (laughs) Drive data insights that other people wouldn't be able to have. One thing I did want to return to, because this question is like you mentioned, it's like you got to understand how the technology works to connect to the customer problems. And I think in a lot of people's heads, that leads to things like, ah, well, I got to learn a bunch about machine learning or Python and all that kind of stuff. And I actually do not think that is the case. I do not think those are the things to go learn. 
right? And so I think the things to go learn are essentially all of the different methods and strategies that influence and manifest different customer experiences and different possibilities for the customers. And I'll give you an example. Some people might think this is a basic example, depending on how deep you're on AI right now. But one of the common methods right now to give an LLM access to some specific knowledge source, right? whether that's your customer support docs or maybe you're a financial product right? and you have a bunch of financial content, right? is just called a rag, like retrieval augmented generation, right? And you're essentially connecting this- I'm glad you didn't quiz me on what that's- Yeah, yeah. So. You're basically <laughs> connecting an external library, specialized library to a brain, you know, like the, yeah. the LLM. Yeah, it's a way to create better prompts using external data. Yeah. Basically, you like feed it into the L. Yeah. But within that, there's tons of different like little levers and things that you can change that fundamentally change the experience, right? So an example is one of the things that you do in this method is that you take this external knowledge source and you basically have to chunk it up into different sized pieces, right? Because what it does is it takes a chunk of that external knowledge source, it includes it in a prompt for an LLM to give the LLM the context, right? Along with some kind of request. Can you answer a question on this using like this, this context? And the thing right now with the, the LLMs is like the amount of context you can give it is limited. And actually, the more you give it at some point, like the, the quality decreases. And so one of the strategies here is you split all this external knowledge into all of these, these different size pieces. And the size of the pieces that you create and how you create those size pieces actually fundamentally change what the output looks like to the end user. And there's all sorts of different techniques emerging around this. And so that's one small example within the whole thing. And so when looking at like a benchmark data set and being like, ah, for some reason, this is not pulling the most relevant results over here that I know exists, that's possibly due to the way that you are splitting up your external knowledge source and chunking your knowledge source. And so you got to help the team connect those dots to a certain degree, but that doesn't require going and learning Python or designing like an algorithm. And so I think these are like some of the areas that folks need to go deep on along the way. Ravi Mehta, he was a chief product officer at Tinder a while back. He's done a bunch of other things. He has this competency model. If you've searched anything, you probably come across it. And he's got all these different skill sets for product managers. And, you know, the shape of this, like where you spike essentially changes as your role changes. This is like how he's mapped it out as an example. So I'm interested when you look at these quadrants, which quadrant are the ones that you're like, mm, this is where I, I want to go deeper and which ones are like the ones that you think just get eroded away. Okay. I have some hypotheses, but push back on them. The first is I think that product strategy remains important and probably the most important, even at more junior roles and levels of, of positioning inside of companies, because if you believe that the leverage that you can get out of a small team increases, what will become more important, it will be how do I best use and best leverage this team? And that really ends up being about how can I position my team to have the highest strategic impact? How can I present a compelling vision? How can I own business outcomes and drive success? So that's my opinion on the product strategy one. I think it it's either a hold 
or a buy. Like it's either more important or it's at least a hold. I just think if you think about the dynamics of both, again, the economy and AI in the same time, that's going to be what you expect out of everybody. It's going to be really hard to be like not thinking deep like about product strategy and be successful in an organization. So that's one. The second one I have sort of a, a 50-50 on. I can't figure out if the customer insight thing becomes more important or less important. And here's my thinking. This is really about data, customer interviews, voice of the customer, et cetera. A lot of tools here oh, to make this a lot easier. Yeah, like 100%. Yeah. We you know, we were using Gong to be able to look at every single sales conversation that's ever happened or a tool like Grain to look at every customer interview. There's tons of stuff around getting the things you always wish you had, like sentiment analysis, like high value quotes out of your surveys, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is so much easier to do. Same with data, writing SQL, querying stuff, getting insights, look at this data set and tell me interesting things. So I think the executional aspects of that, like if you, okay, I used to give every PM the advice that the number one thing you can do if you want to be successful, especially in a startup is learn SQL, because now you're an answerer of a question instead of an asker of a question. And that's a really valuable thing to be because mm-hmm. you you're a creator of insights. I think the advice is the same. Be a creator of insight, mm-hmm. be a creator of opportunity be an answerer of questions. But I don't think that that lies in the technical skill of writing SQL or being really good at designing a high quality NPS survey. It's instead around being able to glean the right insights from it. So again, that one's weird. Like half of it becomes less important. But again, same thing as in product strategy, the strategic thinking, insight generation, what do I do with this? becomes more important. That's my sort of look on that one. Those are the two that stood out to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the, <clears throat> yeah, and I've been thinking about that related to these like voice of customers tools too, that do like auto analysis of all of the customer responses. And first, let's be honest, every team likes to say that they talk to customers and the, the ones that do it on a consistent basis is probably a much smaller fraction of that. So to some degree, these tools will at least increase that percentage of folks who, because it's, the work is becoming more efficient. But I think that the conversation earlier is the best insights I've ever gotten around product are kind of reading through just the rawness of it and trying to understand the texture and the nuance around it. And I just, I wonder how, how much we lose that in, in, in these tools. Or maybe they get so good at it that it actually helps you get to that nuance without introducing our problem as humans, which is the bias. Okay. So let's like tinker on this data and insight. I feel like one of the reasons why knowing SQL, for instance, in a traditional product work is a superpower is that the feedback loop from I have a thought to have an answer goes down a lot, right? So you can iterate and you can test. Imagine I had a question about the participants of this Zoom and I had to go ask an analyst about it and be like, hey, I'd love to see the geographic breakdown of the people that were in this Zoom and look at a bunch of other factors. And the first thing they'd ask is, hey, is that more important than the other stuff I'm working on? And you'd be like, no, not really. So you'd skip it and you wouldn't do it at all. If I could do it myself, I would just get it done in two minutes. It doesn't have to go in a queue. It doesn't have the overhead of an organizational thing. And now I can answer a question. 
And then I can ask the next question. Oh, why are there so many people from Amsterdam in this call? And then I could ask the question about how we marketed it and look at the LinkedIn day. And I can dig down and I can get to an aha that I wouldn't have otherwise been accessible to because of the shortness of the feedback loop. So my thought is there's no replacement for reading the raw material of like qualitative customer feedback, but it's been really hard to do that. Ask a question, get an answer, ask a question, get an answer, drill down because it's just too much text. And survey stuff is really tricky to get right because of statistics and all those sorts of things. And so maybe if you wanted to get really good at that, your job is to learn how to use the tools to get to the right quotes. So anyway, just the thought about it is I'm fascinated by the idea of being able to ask structured, not quite SQL, but like structured query type questions of unstructured data and get insights back. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for someone to lean into the way like being really good at analyzing growth data became a superpower. I think there might be something there around qualitative insight as well. I do like the high level framing of become a creator of insights. And I think some of this tooling is going to reduce a lot of the friction to becoming a creator versus, you know, an asker of it. I guess one thing that keeps bouncing around in my head looking at this is, are we just saying entry level roles go away? Like, let, let me just put that out there for a second, because it's certainly happening. And like I've seen in other functions, startups pop up that are basically your AI version of an SDR, which is an entry level role in sales or even in marketing. A lot of like the executional tasks that a very entry level marketer would typically take on are being like pushed to different tools. T- to your point, yes, the strategic, the complex problems, all that kind of stuff is really important. But the reason that doesn't necessarily exist at the entry level is that those things like anything, you need more reps to get better at something. And those things have long feedback cycles, right? And so it takes a while to accrue being part of those feedback cycles, like seeing seeing the game tape, right? And so it's not like you can just graduate college or, or whatever, enter a function and have those skill sets. Like you still need to get the reps at seeing the game tape and all that kind of stuff. So but yeah. I, I can't imagine quote unquote entry levels like go away. So I, I don't know. I'm interested in like, do you have I any takes on that? Okay. So let's just look at it in the next 12 to 18 months for both economic and AI reasons. So many people come to me and say, Hey, I really need like a product manager who's senior enough to run a team by themselves on an important strategic problem. And that's who I'm hiring. I'm not hiring junior people right now. And I think that's actually pretty common, right? I think the place where you're really going to get squeezed, and I think this is what somebody just said in the chat, is like middle management and product management. Because if each PM is like more independent, more able to get work done without having team, and you don't need so many layers, for almost any company up to a product design and engineering org of, let's say, four or 500 people, you can imagine a world with a head of product and a bunch of product managers. And that's it. Now that squeezes the bottom because each PM has a lot of responsibility and it squeezes the middle because there's no world for, oh, my job is to people manage and influence people around a product area that has three people on it, which used to be very, very common and still is. So I think there's something to that. I don't think entry-level roles go away. I think the shape of what they will be asked to do is different. So instead of entry-level PM, be like, copy this product brief into user stories in Jira and be a glorified project manager, it might be more like, 
do senior PM work. Go understand yeah. this complex customer problem and identify opportunities. And maybe you have a peer mentor that helps you succeed at that. I think that's good would be true even without AI, just because of the dramatic bloat in team sizes that we've seen over the past three to four years. I think it's just exacerbated by it. At least that's my guess. I think in the near term, though, I don't know if any company is running their APM program at scale right now, which is kind of worrisome. Yeah, I do think that's an interesting point. And, and Alifia, who mentioned this same thing in the chat, right? The middle management thing. And we did talk about this with Claire, though, too. And so I do think in the next couple of years, I think there's going to be a push and there's also an opportunity for folks that were in that mid-level management to basically become very senior ICs. And that's what we've also shifted Reforge totally to as well is that we've really started to orient the company around what we call captains, these very senior ICs. And we really reduced the number of what we call coach roles, people who are purely coaching from the sidelines. And I think to the earlier point, like that very senior IC track, you're still getting the reps of the game, the game tape, the strategic problems that are important to eventually maybe shift over into the limited number of coaching and in management roles like in the future. But I do think we're going to see a lot of that conversion happen here in the interim as part of that as well. Yeah. If you're a GPM or a director inside of a large company and most of your job is on the influencing people, management, and maybe a little bit of product feedback stuff, I'd go find something to work on, like a project. I'd Creating like stuff. Go yeah. listen to Claire's, go listen to Claire's podcast, learn how she as a CPO actually has IC work that she does, and go try to replicate that. Don't take the most important project away from someone on your team that's bad management, but go find something that you're building because I think ultimately your resilience in an organization will be around what you're responsible for delivering probably individually. And the better the people are on your team, the more risk I think there is there. So go find some good work to do. Maybe that's the right advice. I've been thinking about this a lot as I think about what I want to be doing in my career. And yeah, being close to the metal on building has risen dramatically in terms of its importance in my stack rank of things that matter to me. Yeah. I do think that part of like career opportunities are also dictated by like how companies organize themselves, right? And I think that we are going through the hard shift for existing companies, right? That's where you see a lot of the layoffs and, and all that kind of stuff. But it sounds like Alifia in the chat as a founder is like, she sounds like she structured their company around this. And I think you're going to see a lot of startups do that, right? Is they're going to structure their companies around like some of these principles. And those are the opportunities of the future, right? Because those organizations are going to be developed and structured like this from the bottoms up versus going through this conversion. And I think it's a painful change for a lot of folks, especially folks who have taken those roles and taken some bets as part of their career. And I think the unfortunate tough love is doesn't fucking matter. Like shit changes. <laughs> like at the end of the day, shit changes. The environment changes. You like, I think that the sooner you accept that reality and honesty, the better. I also just side note, I think the creation work is way more fun and satisfying than the management work. That's me personally. I don't know why so many people wanted to be middle managers, yeah. but yeah, it's just it's just like a lot of sucking rather than satisfaction. So anyways, yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to remind people of this, but like 
do you really want to spend a whole two months of your year writing performance reviews? Is that how you want to spend your life? <laughs> <laughs> incentives need to change. See, incentives will change in the ecosystem, you know, if if this is if this is correct. So yeah. I yeah. I, I think you're starting to see it. I mean, look, engineering has always had this two-track path. And in companies that with where deep technical expertise is necessary and important, there are IC engineers who can make as much money and equity as any manager at any level, which is, I think, an important piece of the puzzle as we think about the incentive alignment here. I know, Brian, you on a previous episode suggested that we may should maybe even pay ICs more than managers to bring the point really home. I think so. Uh, at yeah, director and senior levels. Yeah. I think the principal product manager as a title is going to be an emerging trend over the next couple of years. I've seen a lot more posts for it. I will say like at most companies I've worked at, senior PM was the terminal IC role. Like it usually goes senior group. And maybe there were like one or two IC-ish group PMs, right? That owned something important. But if you wanted to be a director, VP, et cetera, you had to manage people. And that meant adding a lot of people to your team. So the incentives are aligned around make this sub problem I work on as important enough to add enough people to grow into that role so I can hit my promotion. I, I think we're going to start seeing more of it. I mean, I've been surprised by, as I just like search around on LinkedIn and take a look at the job market, the number of like very senior principal IC type roles that I see out there. Yeah. All right. I think we should get into the Q&A part of it. So one of the questions we had was, as AI continues to evolve, what strategies or approaches would you recommend to PMs and leaders to future-proof their roles and ensure they remain in indispensable? I just kind of want to reiterate the point is, I don't think there is future-proofing your career, right? I've had to reinvent myself multiple times throughout my career. Farid, I know you've done the same as well, right? So I think the only future-proofing is getting better and better at learning to learn, reinventing yourself along the way and having that willingness to do it. Because I do think the cycles of reinvention probably accelerate, right? The, the people entering their career today probably will need to reinvent themselves more times than you and I had. Anything to add to that? A friend of mine at Slack, and I'm sure she got this from somewhere else, Julia Grace used to describe, say, hey, careers are jungle gyms, not ladders, right? You kind of like, or hopping around the thing and jumping from thing to thing. And hopefully you're getting further up and advancing and growing your career in some meaningful way. But the idea that you're just going to go one rung at a time from like L3 to L4 to L5 to L6 to M1 to M2 or whatever it is, it, it is a path to the Peter principle, like hitting the point of your high, you know, most incompetence or whatever. But if you follow not just the market, but your passions and what's interesting to you and companies you find interesting, like your career growth is a function of both your skills and the environment you're in. And you have to be finding the matches. And so for me, I've gone from a VP of product to a IC senior PM because the opportunity at the company seems good. I've had one of those moves fail. I've had one of them succeed. I've done three, four different types of jobs. And part of it is like following what's exciting, working with people I think are great, working on products I care about, and with the trust and betting on yourself that you will be able to grow and be successful in those if you're in the right environment. And I, I agree with you, the pathway for that is changing. I don't think that means changing jobs more frequently. Yes. I think Good that point. means taking sequential bets that 
are a good fit and then leaning into them till they're provably working or not working. Um, the goal is to stay with a place for a long time, I would say. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I try to choose every role as, can I see myself being here in 10 years? Because it turns out 10 years is more like four. If you look at it as a four-year, it's probably more like one. <laughs> so, you know, you might as well take the long view. All right, let's get to some of these questions. Michael Kraft asked, Fareed, you talked about playing and tinkering with the LLMs in order to be an effective product leader. Where to start? Being a chat GPT prompt whiz doesn't feel sufficient, even though you could add that to the byline of your LinkedIn any day. <laughs> we could create like a wizard hat, you know, for you yeah. with like little AI. Th- yeah. <laughs> like, I think you have to find a project. Like this is the same way. Like, how do you learn to code? Build a website you're interested in, <laughs> you know, or build a project. I think it's the same with this. And there's some stuff you can do inside your job, but that's hard because you're under time pressure. So you're in a situation where you're like, okay, let me try and write a technical spec using ChatGPT. Oh, it's not really working. Screw it. I'm going to go do it myself. Right. I think what's interesting is to try to really finish something and do it as a side project. So I'll just use an example of one I did recently. Okay. Brian's going to laugh. I play a lot of golf. One of the running debates in the golf community is like, are handicaps broken? And do they help like the low handicap for the high handicap? Anyway, I had a thought in my mind. You could write a simulation to simulate matches of people with different handicaps using some input data and figure out what's fair, what's not fair. But I will tell you, I can write this code by myself, but it would take a long time and I wouldn't get it right. So what I did was I was like, let me just try and finish this project using GPT as my helper. And I actually used a bunch of stuff. I grabbed data off the internet and had it scrape the images. I had it write the code. Turns out it wrote the wrong code. But because I have enough input to know that, I was like, hey, I think you made a mistake here. And it was like, oh, you're right. Let me fix it. Like again, And when you get into this rhythm of actually trying to finish something that actually works and is correct, you learn a ton about what it's good at and what it's not good at. Right. So it is good at writing code when you tell it exactly what to do. It is good at breaking down a process. It makes lots of mathematical errors, like simple, like we're talking like first year stats type stuff. Right. So there's things like that where you learn like, oh, what do I have to be good at in order to direct this? And so I think it's about finding a project. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent about my silly project. <clears throat> but I know you like to talk about the, golf. Yes, I, I know you. Like I do. This is golf and data and code. <laughs> it's like the three things I love the most in one place. So yeah, exactly. I've been on my own journey on this for, I would say, probably the past few months. And so yes, Reforge has some courses on AI, specific parts of AI. They're definitely good. They're definitely worth it if you want to look at them and, and see where it's at. But I do think nothing replaces the creation. I think the courses just reduce the amount of time that you need to do to go synthesize and structure the source knowledge, right? But it doesn't replace creation at at the same time. So I went through a journey myself over the past few months. One is I kind of did what Fareed was doing is I just played around with a bunch of products. I tried a bunch of stuff to try to get a sense of what it was good at, what they were bad at. And I didn't know why they were good at certain things and why they were bad at certain things, right? But that then basically gave me some interesting color and context and examples to think about. Because the second thing I went and did is I just started reading a bunch of the core research papers. 
And at first I thought these were going to be like research papers as like you find research in biomed and stuff like that. And no, 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 these, these aren't, these are easier to consume. They, they aren't the most exciting things, but they are easier to consume than that world of stuff. And I do think that what the research papers do well is they tend to succinctly say, here's the problem, here's the solution we tried, and here's the improvement we made. And what I, as I started reading through those, I was I start to able to map those things to understanding like the things that I personally tinkered with of what was good and what was bad. I was like, oh, now I understand why this thing I was doing, like it was really bad at that. But here's a new method emerging. It's interesting to see if I'd be really good at that someday. And then the third part of it, which I've moved into is now starting to, with that knowledge, start to build some things. Now, I've mostly right now, just because of time limitations, I'm building stuff with things that are more no-code-y. You know, Zapier is probably like a good platform for that. So I'm just building my own chatbot, connecting it to an external knowledge source, playing with the different prompting methodologies like chain of thought and all that kind of stuff to see the before-afters, like all that kind of stuff. Now, it's that's like a limited approach to it, but those are kind of the steps that I've walked through personally. If you know a lot about Reforge or Brian, that is like the most Brian Balfour-like approach to understanding a problem I've ever heard. Pro tip, ChatGPT knows a lot about AI research papers, like a ton and is very good at explaining them and describing them. So if you do crack open one of these and reading the raw text of it is like not working for you, either because there's too much math or it's too technical or whatever, you can actually just say, please summarize this paper and give it some input into what level you want it to understand. So like my prompts are always, I am a person with a computer science degree and a basic understanding of technical concepts, but no specialty understanding of AI, LLMs and AI please summarize these three papers <laughs> for me. And it actually does a really good job of not summarizing it at like too dumb a level or too smart a level. And then if it does, you can adjust it. You can be like, I don't understand what you mean by this word. Can you go into more depth? And it's been really nice for understanding the core of this stuff and also about finding the papers. You can say, what are the most seminal works on yeah. problem X? So for instance, I didn't know what a transformer was for a long time, which is how this stuff all works. And so you can ask the questions you're afraid to ask your friends, right? So what's a transformer and why does it matter? You know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's it, it's sort of a closed loop yeah. here. All right, let's go through some of these. We got to cut ourselves off, go through a little bit quicker. Josh asked, with fewer layers in the PM org, what does the path look like to transition from IC, senior PM to leadership role, like a VP of product? Um, I think this always depends on the size of company. That kind of relates to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier. And I think the one thing that I want to quantify here is that you don't have to be a manager to be a leader right? The most influential leaders in Reforge are actually ICs. They are the ones on the front lines leading the solving of the most complex problems. It's just that we've removed what we call the coaching responsibilities away from them. We've removed a lot of the hiring responsibilities, positioning players on the field, managing, essentially keeping an eye on like team health. Those are kind of in the few coaching roles that we have. And so I think it really depends on the type of leadership that you're like talking about here. But I just want to make that point is that you can be a leader in IC roles. And it was the same thing at HubSpot. The most senior ICs were in a lot of ways the most influential people because they were the creator of insights and solutions, you know, to use kind of Fareed's words from before. But I do think what the future probably looks more like is there's more of these opportunities for principal staff, whatever you want to call them, 
type of IC roles in product. And those will give you the reps at some of the strategic, like complex problems. And those will then be the jumping off point into more of the management roles versus the typical tr- progression through the middle management of GPM and stuff like that. But it takes a while for the ecosystem to change, right? But that's the thing is you want to bet on a rising trend, not a declining trend, even though a lot of this stuff exists in the interim. Random question that just popped in my head. Do you think the growth specialization has become more durable or less durable? So I think there's an interesting lesson here, which is there was a time when growth was its own department in a lot of companies, right? It wasn't marketing. It wasn't product. It was growth and it had its own head of, and it had its own chief growth officers were a thing. That's still kind of a thing, et cetera. And what you've seen is as more and more companies have realized growth is really important, requires coordination between all of our teams to be successful. What you've seen is growth in the product org as a discipline, growth in the marketing org as a discipline, and an understanding of how to work together. I suspect you'll see the same with AI as there's going to be like the chief AI officer or whatever for a while. It's going to be its own thing. It's going to hang out, but eventually it's just going to be like, yeah, everybody works on AI stuff. That's what matters. So then to answer your specific question slightly instead of the question I wanted to answer, I think understanding how to drive impact in the business will always be high value. That might be a selfish answer for myself, but the reason a growth team exists is because it is the natural tendency of organizations to focus on power users, especially product orgs, right? Those are the people who complain the most. Those are the people who ask for features. They're the ones who pay you the most money. So it needs to be somebody's job to be like, can we please pay attention to the person who's never signed up for this thing yet? right? It's really like owning new user experience. That's really foundationally what a growth product company does, right? And then thinking about it commercially, connecting the dots to numbers and dollars. And I think those two things probably become even more important in an AI-driven product. Yeah. Because the tendency of products to hyper-personalize around their most power users is probably even stronger than ever. Yeah. Just related to the growth specialization, everyone asked, what advice would you give people at the beginning of their growth product career in the realm of AI? Interestingly, it's the same advice that I've actually been giving for years, which is I think the thing that people underinvest in the most within the growth specialization, and honestly, in any product role, is understanding user psychology, just like what influences users' like decisions and actions in the product is we just tend to take a very rational approach to thing. And the answer to what influences users' behavior tends to be very irrational things. And so there are some folks that we know who's been on the pod, like Darius Contractor, for example, who there's these folks that just like approach that topic with such depth and nuance and creativeness. And as a result, they just think so differently. They come up with such like different set of solutions. And I think even in the realm of AI, I would still invest in understanding user psychology and how that connects to software products. And this goes much deeper than understanding if I put a times running out one hour piece of text that people will convert more. It's like understanding complex flows and what's going through the the user's heads and, and, and how you can influence that with both software, copy, all those types of things. Let's move on. All right. I think we have time for one more. Oh, interesting. Ibrahim asked, how can one get better at extracting insights from raw customer feedback, which we talked about before? Wow. Um, <laughs> Ibrahim, you blew Fareed's mind. Yeah. Reps. 
It's it, true. Reps is part of it. Re- yeah, yeah. Reps is a huge one. The thing I've used the most recently to get raw customer feedback and conversations is Gong. And I've been very surprised by what unlocks when you record every sales call, when you record every customer call. Like it's a huge trove of information that you never would have had otherwise. And I think this is starting to happen everywhere else. But the question is like, how do you find the stuff that matters? Like, man, listening to a one hour sales call can be a real drag. And so again, it's a lot like data analysis where I think you have to just block off some time to be like, I have no goal in mm. this. I just want to like Hated. find interesting yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. You're just wallowing in it. You're like laying in the jacuzzi <laughs> of customer data and waiting to see what interests. And I think that's the best way to do it. I found some of my most valuable growth data insights doing that with data, just clicking on dashboards and being like, oh, let me ask another question, another question. I think you have to do that with customer insight because the ability to ask good questions comes from like a native understanding of what's in there and what people are saying. And the only way to get that is to be hanging out in the room. We're 100% creating an image of you in the jacuzzi of customer data. Oh, no. <laughs> Just passing <laughs> it. All right, we got to wrap here. That was our first ever live recording of unsolicited feedback. Hopefully you all enjoy the upcoming season. And I'm sure we will be touching on this topic throughout the season as things change. Other than that, check out reforge.com. If you haven't, we've got a couple AI courses and product management career courses related to this topic that I'm sure this topic will be interweaved. And uh, you can always follow Fareed and I on the socials, LinkedIn and Twitter along the way. Fareed, any other final messages? No, that's it. This was super fun. It does feel good to know there's people there watching. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks, everybody.